Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome everyone to another Wessex LMCs podcast. My name is Andy Purbrick and I'm joint CEO of Wessex LMCs and also a GP working in Poole in Dorset. Uh, today we're going to be tackling the meaty uh, issue of why and how a GP partnership may decide to hand back their contracts and close their practice. And I'm joined by a, a veritable panel of experts in Robert McCartney from Henson Solicitors, Rachel Crean from VWV Solicitors, Sally Sidaway from Morris Crocker Accountants and Adam Thompson from Primary Care Surveyors. So you may be thinking, why on earth are the LMC talking about closing the practice? And I want to be clear that our main priority at Wessex LMCs is obviously to try and ensure that practices don't ever reach that position where they consider to do this or, or that they're ever left in a position where they feel it's the only conceivable option. It really is an Armageddon situation and there are significant financial and legal implications for for partners uh, if they are faced with closing their practice. When I joined my practice about 20 years ago, it was seen as a safe, secure business which would continue in perpetuity. And I never imagined at any stage there would be a, a need to consider closing the practice. And I was always told by everyone uh, from accountants to solicitors that it was really a, a safe option buying into general practice. But the reality is there are practices closing. Um, most existing partners won't have thought about the implications of closing the practice to themselves when they joined their practice. Uh, but we've got a whole generation of younger prospective partners who are being put off the partnership modelled by the perceived personal risks and liabilities. And so a number of our constituents and committee members have asked that we put out advice for, for our GPs so that they're better informed of the practicalities, implications, liabilities and realities um, of closing the practice, as well as the alternatives in there. And perhaps we can also help to dispel a few myths. Um, so without further ado, let's open up to the panel and say, what are the main triggers um, that are making people consider winding up their business? Uh, and when may you be uh, forced to consider it? So perhaps if we go to um, Rachel first. Yes, the, the context in which I'm often advising is where the decision's been taken out of the contractor's hand. So it's in the kind of urgent situations where the CQC or the commissioner has decided to take steps that brings the contract to an end. So the CQC could cancel or suspend your registration and the commissioner could uh, terminate your contract. They've got the powers to do that almost immediately. Um, in reality, we often see it happen on um, at least a couple of days notice, sometimes more like a month. Thanks, Rachel. Robert. From your perspective, where are you seeing the, the, the main triggers? Um, so I, I see it at that end as well, but more from the perspective of kind of longer term issues, recruitment being the most common one we hear. We just can't find a new partner when uh, older partners have retired. Um, and the concerns about risks and liability from being the last person standing. Nobody wants to be the one who is uh, responsible for turning off the lights at the end of the day. Um, those are definitely a recurring theme for the individuals who contact us and the partners who contact us. Thank you. Sally, from a financial perspective, are practices at risk of um, not being financially viable? We're faced with record inflation um, and um, reducing practice income. Uh, are you seeing this as a reality for practices? 
Yes, I think in, in reality, we are seeing a, a proportion of practices where cash flow is becoming extremely difficult. Um, you may have new partners coming in um, who, with the new partnership uh, monies having gone, are struggling to, to build up working capital at the same time, paying exiting partners, and that's couple with the inflation rates as we see them, uh, particularly with regard to staff costs, but also with regard to the interest rates on property loans, which are very, very significant in some instances now and are a real barrier to new partners coming in and buying, buying into properties. So, so cash flow at the end of the day is always king. Um, and I think this is a problem. Um, and that, that, that stems both into the practice, but also into the, the personal side of the GP who, who is, is struggling on a domestic cash flow perspective to be able to take lower drawings than the cash flow of the practices is actually allowing. Mm-hmm. Adam, are there any uh, premises issues that could trigger a, a closure? Well, picking up what Sally just said, a big impact over the last year, 18 months, has been the rise in interest rates, leading to increasing mortgage costs. And where practices were perhaps finding that their notional rent more than covered their mortgage, that in some instances is no longer the case. So compounded impact of the uh, rising interest rates. Also, what we are finding in some instances is Practices where doctors perhaps get into the end of their career and uh, maybe in a house conversion type surgery and the notional rents haven't been going up very much. And we actually start doing a state review about, well, actually, this property might now be worth more as something else as opposed to its continuing value as a surgery. So sometimes that's a, a catalyst that sometimes actually leads to practices opting to close. And are we seeing landlords pulling out of the general practice market because of that and practices being left with um, an end to their lease and nowhere to move into. What you're finding at the moment is the the opposite end of that, Andy, is about the development process and the level of rents required to make a new medical centre viable to be built compared to the level of rent that typically is approved by the district valuer. And we have a big disconnect there between uh, viable rents and NHS rents. And that is leading to a whole other issue about the development process at the moment. But landlords are still generally committed to the sector. There aren't that many around, actually. Um, But landlords are committed to the sector, providing the new developments are viable. And that is quite a thorny issue at the moment. Mm. Sally, you wanted to come back in. Yes, one other point on property that I just wanted to add, and, and Adam may be able to take this further forward, is the health centre charges creditors for propco buildings, um, which um, the, the amount of fear that is coupled with the, the huge liabilities that are being demanded and lack of reconciliation as to, to you know, what the, the final settlement will be. Okay. Absolutely. So that's uh, quite a thorny issue there, again, about those, those particular practices. And about 10% of practices are in health centres as owned by NHS Property Services with that whole issue about the service charge and the legacy of that. And of course, the BMA court case that involved centres around that. So we're really getting to perhaps a more critical time with that and for those negotiations about sorting out what the leases will be for those those practices combined with what the settlement figure will be to, to clear the arrears on that service charge. Figures are being banded around about sort of 50 to 80% discount from the alleged amounts, but still a payment to be made. And who is that payment to be made by when partners have left the practice, continuing partners, and where does that debt fall in terms of that cyclical change in the partnership? And that's, so being a, a prospective partner joining the practice, uh, perhaps one of the solicitors is, uh, 
I would perhaps be slightly cautious about joining the practice where that is that legacy arrears to be to be resolved. Mm. So if we look at the the triggers for closing a practice, I think that there are some triggers that are out of your hands. Uh, so CQC, contract breach, the, the commissioner making that decision. And then there are the practices themselves making decision for um, reasons of recruitment, workload, work-life balance, financial viability, personal liability, etc. But let's dispel a few myths. How common is it for a practice to close in its entirety? Rachel. I dealt with three urgent terminations last year, two CQC related, one due to contract breaches. That was unusual. The year before, we'd only dealt with one and that was for an insolvency event. So I would typically see only one a year, I think. Okay, and they are enforced closures rather than the partnership making a decision themselves to be to be closing. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, partnership-driven closures, Robert, have you got any experience of those? So they do happen. Um, they're not as frequent as I think people fear. But what we do find is they are normally the driving force for uh, practices looking at other options, okay. so other reasons to exit, um, which means you're almost driven by a negative. You want to avoid a closure rather than a potential positive of, well, we really want to merge and create this new entity. Um, and that's often where I see them coming from. But you do get them particularly with the smaller practices still and single-handers that there is no doubt they are closing Um, on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. And Sally? Yes, one sort of slightly thorny issue here. I think what we are seeing, and I'm sure the lawyers are seeing, is is many more partnerships disputes and, and fallings out amongst partners with the stress of the work-life balance etc etc so the only one that I've seen close ever has arisen because of that that has arisen because of a dispute and just not having a way forward and that was made worse by a health centre charges debacle as we mentioned earlier. Okay so I, I think I can take from that that although we're seeing the number the total number of practices reducing nationally that's not necessarily practices closing, but they're looking at alternatives to closure, so be it merger uh, and that sort of thing. So we're going to ta- we're going to address that a bit later on in the conversation. But I think the take home message at the moment is, despite the the fear, we are not seeing an avalanche of practices closing, and that's a that's a positive thing. Uh, so what are the practical steps that we have to take if we do want to close our practice? And let's start with. Um, Uh, our legal colleagues, so Rachel. So if I'm looking at it from uh, the context of the short notice terminations, um, you need to have a quick look at your um, liabilities um, and starting with the biggest is usually the premises, um, working out what the implications are if if the practice is going to actually close, the list is going to get dispersed. Staff situation, are staff going to cheaply transfer somewhere else or are there redundancy costs? Um, Look at your ongoing contracts to think about whether any of these can be handed over to a new provider or whether you're going to be stuck with contract termination costs. Um, When it's happening last minute, there's some quite practical things to do, like um, uh, taking your meter readings and so, so that you stop paying utility bills immediately, looking at your list of direct debits, stop any of those um, that aren't going to impact continuity of care um, and 
document what you've got in the practice. So that means going around taking photographs of the condition of the premises, make a list of your furniture and equipment. There's no reason to give all of that um, away for free um, and do a stock take as well. Um, some things you, in the practice will be quite high value, such as vaccines, where it could be thousands of pounds worth of um, vaccines or other other medicines. Um, and you want to make sure you've got a clear agreement that somebody's going to take those on and pay for them. Um, yeah, that's the kind of the, the practical things. If, if you're looking at um, a termination where you've got a bit more notice and you've got a bit more planning, there are other other considerations. And what are the termination notice periods? If I'm a contract holder, say a GMS contract holder, is, uh, have I got a notice period that I have to give to the ICB? Yeah, so the contract um, asks that you give three months notice if you're a single hander and six months notice if you're in a partnership. Um, you can bring the contract to an end sooner um, by, for, for example, if your partnership dissolves overnight, that would automatically end, end the contract. But then I'd query whether you put yourself at risk of some sort of referral um, for breaching your professional obligations to put patients' interests best, put patients' best interests first, um, and you need to be mindful of continuity of care to patients. Okay, thank you, Rachel. Robert, any other considerations in terms of the practicalities of of um, winding down your practice? Yes, yeah, so I think if you take a longer term approach to it, <clears throat> from where you've actually got a bit of a bit of time um, to think about what it is you're trying to deliver. Um, often we see that you can plan out a structured kind of exit rather than have the kind of last moment type situation. Um, burying your head in the sand is unfortunately very common. Uh, you know that two of your uh, four partners are due to retire because of their age and because they keep talking about what they're going to do in their wonderful retirement. Um, and you also know that there's no new partners. Uh, every request to uh, attempt to recruit has been unsuccessful. That's a big warning sign that you need to consider what you're going to be doing in when those two partners retire and beyond. So being able to actually have those difficult conversations within your partnership, pulling together a, a list of exactly what the issues are, what the challenges are, and trying to plan out a uh, either finding solutions, that's the ideal, or planned um, uh, uh, negotiations, discussions that are needed to try and resolve these problems to give you a planned exit, that will put you in a far stronger position. Um, it's all about control at that stage. You lose all control the moment that you've You've said, I've, I've had enough and we're giving notice on the contract. At that point, it's all on with the commissioners. Before then, you're controlling the contract, you're controlling your practice, um, and you've got opportunities to look for new uh, for solutions. Okay, thank you. Sally, financial considerations if you're planning to, to close the, the practice. Yes, I think the key message here is that there's no get out of jail free card with regard to the finances. So the the, the assets and liabilities of the partnership will still exist. Um, and in particular, uh, you need to look at those liabilities. So so staff redundancies obviously are, is the key one. Um, and just remembering when you're quantifying um, staff redundancies that salary GPs actually kick back to when they joined the NHS rather than just when they, they joined the practice. So you really do need to quantify that. We've got areas such as, I'm um, assuming that you own the property, 
you've got potential loan redemption fees were you to sell the property early and pay off the loan um, and dilapidations, as we've said before. Um, you, you, HMRC is not going to go away. There can be tax implications in terms of, of income tax paid due, due quicker, uh, capital gains tax. There can be stamp duty land tax um, implications and all sorts of things there, as well as pension implications, superannuation cost implications. Um, certainly with regard to the financial side, um, you may be able to close uh, the contract overnight, but the finances will go on for an awful long time. Your partnership will stay in existence and those liabilities will not leave you because that partnership has ceased to contract with the NHS. So um, you, you can't just walk away from the financial liabilities. And those, it, it, it does strike me that those financial liabilities are potentially huge and somewhat hidden from from daylight. You know, it, it, you, you describe quite a lot of deferred liabilities there, um, which I think if you are closing your practice, you would want to know way in advance of making that Armageddon decision, because uh, I strongly feel that that those liabilities would incentivize you to look for alternative options at 99.9% of the time. Yeah, absolutely. From an accountant's point of view, I, I would never, never hand that contract back unless you, you, it was forced. Yeah. Okay. Rachel? Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's a good idea to speak to the commissioner at an early stage if you're thinking about handing your contract back to get a steer from them as to what they might do if you were to do that. Um, because whether they... Um, disperse your list or put in a new provider is going to make a massive difference to your liabilities. Okay, good. Uh, Robert? Another element to check is what your partnership deed actually says. Um, it will kind of define how these, well, many of them will define how these liabilities are actually shared between the individuals. Um, it also gives timeframes for retirement, uh, when somebody can retire, whether or not there's any restrictions on people leaving, and whether or not there are any what are called the last person standing clauses that will allow you all to leave at the same time. All of that will shape uh, the level of liability on the partners as individuals as well as the, on the partners as a partnership. Um, and that will impact on people's individual choices as to how they manage this situation. Okay. Adam, from a property point of view, what do we need to consider practically when we're winding up the business? There's quite a few issues there. But as Rachel said earlier, it really depends on whether the patient list is going to carry on uh, a service being provided from the same premises, is there a demand for that, or is the patient list being dispersed by the premises to other practices in the locality? Then it depends on whether you own the surgery or you lease it. So if you own the surgery and there's ongoing demand for that location, well, is the incoming service provider going to buy the premises from you or are they going to lease it from you? If they lease it from you, you've got mortgage on there. It may be that your mortgage is... is on the basis of you being the owner-occupier of that pre of, of that pre premises with the notional rent that goes with that. But if you're not the occupier, not getting notional rent, you may be in breach of your mortgage covenants. So there's an issue there that might, may come into play. If you lease your premises, pretty much then comes down to the terms of the lease and what, how long has that lease got to go, who are the tenants of the lease, and if you can transfer or assign that lease to the new service provider taking it on from you. So it's really understanding the details of that lease. They always often talk about break clauses in leases, but if you haven't got a break clause, there's nothing you can do. If you have got a break clause, it depends on the wording of that break clause. 
and the conditionality or the dates that apply to that break clause. So this is where break clause is. You may have the right break clause, but you may not have the right break clause that, that helps you out in that circumstance. Okay. And when, when we see young partners joining practices we, uh, and they're taking on a lease, we would always want to know in their lease whether they had a break clause. Just touching very briefly on the break clause, that's your option to get or, or review the lease and uh, and get out of the lease um, at an earlier stage than the, the total liability of the lease as a whole. Is that right? Break clauses can go two ways. So it might be a, in this circumstance, we're talking about a tenant break option. Mm-hmm. So a tenant can terminate the lease and walk away. Conversely, it may also be a landlord break option. So let's focus on tenants break options. They might be at a set date. They may be on certain events. So a conditional break option, uh, that condition may be that they've lost the contract. Now, we often hear the phrase about an Armageddon clause, but the Armageddon clause is a very dramatic name for a very dramatic scenario. And generally speaking, that only applies if all practices lose their NHS funding rather than this one practice in isolation losing its funding. So an Armageddon clause may not actually cover the scenario in hand that we're talking about. So be very careful, need to understand the detail of what that break option is, if you have a break option at all. And a lot of leases in the primary care sector don't have break clauses because actually in the main, they're not often needed because for for a landlord to grant a lease on the medical centre to get adequate return, he needs to have long-term security, long-term security of income. So break options can contradict that. Also, generally speaking, the, the demand for healthcare continues long term. The practice may have trouble. They may change to a different service provider. So generally speaking, break options are, are not that common in the sector. What's very important in the lease is how you transfer the lease, assign the lease to other people. So if this first practice is failing for whatever reason, but there's an ongoing demand, can we transfer the lease across to that incoming service provider? Okay. So I think that the take-home messages there, I would say, whether you're an owner or whether you're leasing a property, is that property fit for purpose moving forward? Because actually, if you want out, someone else is likely to want to come into that property to deliver for the population of patients you've got. I think that's a really important consideration when you're joining a, a partnership. If you're an owner you, uh, and you, you've got to consider redemption penalties, you've got to consider repaying the loan. Uh, if you're not delivering services from that building, uh, are, is the building going to be able to fulfill um, the equity that you require to repay that loan if it's used for a, a, another purpose? And similarly with the lease, you know, have you got those break clauses in or are you going to be left holding a, a, a 25-year lease for a building that no one um, that you don't have a use for? Um, and, and that's a significant liability. Robert? I was just going to add, I had a, a situation a few years ago with a client who were absolutely petrified. They had 10, no, 15 years left on their lease, and the youngest partner had wanted to retire within five years. They couldn't recruit. Um, the reality of it is, though, you have to look at it in the whole, exactly as you've indicated. Their practice was financially stable. They had a very good workforce. They were in a, a, a really nice uh, property. Um, and they had a very large patient list size. That practice wasn't going anywhere. It was just a question of 
who was going to be running it in the future. And once you uh, kind of, as they say, you know, get beyond seeing the wood for the trees, as it were, um, you get to this situation where actually it might not be as bad as you seem. And that's why sitting down and putting together all these perspectives from the different, uh, get the experts in if necessary, but all these different elements together and taking a long-term view of how much of it um, means you have to take an immediate decision and how much of it can you plan out really does uh, uh, change um, your options for the future. I think that's a really important point. So the likelihood of you having to close your practice overnight is small, but a complete Armageddon issue. Uh, And I think Rachel's touched on the fact that you can be forced to close by the commissioner or CQC. And in that instance, you can be shut with immediate effect and your income as partners from both the uh, from your rental income and your contract income stops overnight. That is a significant um, personal liability risk. But the more um, the more likely scenario is that you take a longer term view and that actually you can plan an exit strategy. And as we're going to touch a, a bit later on, that exit strategy rarely is a complete closure of the practice in the. There is often someone else that may want to come in and take on the list or the premises. So um, say those time scenarios of a quick, sudden closure and a more planned, prolonged closure are probably uh, important to to recognise. And I think that takes us quite nicely onto what are the alternatives uh, and, and what might be better than closing your practice. Sally, you wanted to come in. Um, just to say, really, I think well, the point that we perhaps haven't mentioned is the working capital investment that partners might have in in the partnership. And at the point that you have a forced close or a quick close, it is not possible for partners to draw all of their working capital out. This is going to be quite a lot of months, if not you know, a year, two years before we can actually resolve that and draw out working capital. And so you, you could be faced with a situation where your income stops overnight, your drawing stop overnight, but you cannot get your hands on your money that's invested in, in the practice for quite some time. Okay, well, let's let's move on to the alternatives and why they may be better. And I think we've touched on them a little bit. Um, but Rachel, did you want to go first on this? Sure. Yeah, the alternative is to be managing your handover of the contract to, to somebody else, somebody of your choosing, um, in a timescale that suits you. Um, and it means talking to neighbouring practices, your PCN, other organisations. There are bigger organisations out there that are um, hoovering up practices. So there's there's usually an appetite for somebody to take it on. Okay. But one of the key drivers or concerns of practice at the moment is the inability to recruit. So um, can you just explain the idea of someone else coming onto your GMS contract? Who, who could those people be who could come into your, your contract rather than you handing back that contract directly and closing the practice? Um, you're going to need at least um, one GP on the contract. Um, but it's what we most frequently see is some sort of neighbouring practice and it's whether they can um, join resources in some way that um, means that uh, some of the difficulties that a practice is facing can be um, can be dealt with by working on a bigger scale or working from different sites. Those, those kind of things can sometimes help. And I think the words merger and takeover are kind of sort of semantics, really. The beauty of the GMS contract is that you can... Uh, an eligible person can come on to your contract uh, and then those wishing to leave the partnership can come off of the contract. So there's kind of a smooth transition. Robert, have you got anything to add on on that? 
Yeah, so some of the areas that we're seeing development on this type of, of exit planning, um, certainly in NHS Trust looking to take on services on behalf of practices. Now, that can range from being a subcontracted provider of the services. So you're still responsible for the uh, contracts and for the high-end partnership issues, but actually all delivery of services might be through your actual NHS trust. Or they are uh, there are entities that are setting up a kind of special purpose vehicles, which as long as they hit the eligibility criteria, which includes having that medical practitioner owner um, and other owners who are within the NHS family. There's various categories of that. Um, a bit too long to go into now, but basically, if they're employees of trust or employees of the, the actual GMS contract themselves, um, they can own as a limited company um, and potentially have the GMS contract transferred to the company in a process called incorporation. A few years back, that wasn't really an option, but we are seeing that quite frequently now um, as a potential exit plan from partners um, to isolate kind of liabilities and to work in partnership with either NHS Trust or potentially with uh, kind of, kind of third-party providers. Um, there's certainly an appetite out there um, from commercial providers and from um, providers such as one-on-one -on -one providers. Um, there is there are options. There's no doubt about it. So essentially what we're saying is your GMC contract or your PMS contract, but more specifically, I think the GMS contract is allows you a greater degree of flexibility and control in any exit strategy that you, you um, choose to take in that you can decide who comes onto the contract and then by mutual agreement, you can leave the contract. Um, by not handing back the contract, the commissioner doesn't go out to open tender, so you can control who comes in uh, and um, works with you or takes over from you. Um, I think there are subtleties with the PMS contract in that you have to get permission from the commissioner for people to come onto the contract, whereas with the GMS contract, that's solely at your um, your discretion if if you uh, if they meet the criteria to be on the GMS contract. So. The take-home message here is that there are a significant number of options. We have private organisations, we have uh, foundation trusts, we have entrep entrepreneurial GPs setting up their own businesses around the country coming onto contracts, uh, and we have um, neighbouring practices merged to, to, to form super practices, uh, especially around the PCN footprint and certainly there are efficiencies to be had working as a super practice on a PCN footprint. So I think that probably explains why, although we're seeing the total number of GP practices in the country reducing in number, actually the number of practices closing um, isn't that high in the, the in reality we, we have got mergers. Um, uh, anything anyone else has got to add uh, around that, Adam? Yeah, as you say, Andy, it's the, it's the mergers that lead into consolidation. So we're probably going to be crystal ball time. But if you start looking to, towards the future, it's going to be fewer but larger premises. And it will give practices the chance to move into better quality estate, the right assets for the long, longevity of providing that service or accommodating that service being provided. I think combined with that, it's the scale of the GP practice themselves. I think this is where we've been a big shift is moving towards larger practices. And by virtue of that, by you create a larger age range across the partnership. 
So the chances of last man standing diminishes. The onus isn't on the younger partner so much, and it creates a much more sustainable and robust model to tempt new partners in. So the succession issue seems to erode uh, as a challenging prospect when we've got larger practices to work with. So that's sort of the direction of travel, larger practices with larger premises. Mm -hmm. Sally, a final point from you, please. Uh, yes, just on, on the merger sort of thing, if your practice always wants to close because you all want an exit route, I mean, there are exit routes around merger. Once the actual merger has taken place, uh, we see scenarios where the, the, the merging partners then retire very quickly on that same day after that merger has gone through, or you can uh, be a partner in the merge practice for a very small amount of time and then retire as a partner and then become a salaried individual if you don't want that joint and several liability, or you can go in as a, a profit sharing partner. And even if you go in as a profit sharing partner with a much higher earning practice and therefore you're having to take a, a, a parity rise or, or a lower profit share, that's still likely to be a lot better for you than having incurred all those liabilities of actually handing your contract back. Okay. Uh, I think we've had uh, a, a really good discussion and some excellent advice there. Take-home messages for practices are um, planning is essential. Armageddon isn't an inevitability um, and uh, there are plenty of options available for you although at the time you may feel very lonely and, and cast adrift I think there is advice and support out there um, obviously we would always recommend you come to your LMC for support the commissioner has a, a very big interest in this as we've touched upon because if you don't deliver services to these patients someone else has to so we would always recommend that you go to your ICB. They will often support practices with resilient support and, and look at helping to solve the problem of who is going to um, provide services for these patients moving forward. Obviously, your neighbouring practices and PCN are a potential uh, source of support. And then obviously, we've got our accountants, listers and surveyors. They are seeing this day in, day out. Uh, and we would always advise that you consult with them carefully. The BMA have produced guidance on handing back a GMS PMS contract and that's available at their website. Um, I think we've touched on a lot of things today. Um, a lot of you will feel that it's a fairly bleak subject to discuss. Um, uh, and as we've touched on before, the LMC's view is that actually this is an area where we want to avoid practices getting to in the first place. Uh, hopefully, we've disposed a few myths, given you some resource and information uh, and reassured you that actually it's not a common thing that um, that we're coming across. So I'd just like to say it's an opportunity to thank our guests today, uh, Robert McCartney, Rachel Green, Sally Sidaway and Adam Thompson. Uh, and thank you for joining us on this Wessex LMC's podcast. Goodbye. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.